You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Everyone is a hero in this book, and everyone's a villain, which is, I think, the way it pretty much is in real life, too. You know, we want to blame someone. Best-selling author Jody Pico. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. In recent months, you could argue that Florida has become the de facto ground zero for banning books in school libraries. Hundreds of titles, ranging from the extreme to the innocuous, have been deemed unacceptable for inclusion in Florida public school libraries. And recently, the school board in Martin County, Florida, banned, among other books, 20 novels by the best-selling author Jody Pico. Now, her books are bestsellers because she directly and maturely addresses subjects ranging from race and gender and sexual identity and even abortion rights in a, while weaving while also weaving them into compelling stories. In short, her books make you think. Now, I've interviewed Jody Pico several times, including in 2004, when we talked about one of the books that has now been banned in Martin County, a novel called My Sister's Keeper. It's about a teenage girl named Anna and her family. Anna sues her parents to win back some measure bodily autonomy. See, for most of her life, Anna has served as a tissue donor for her chronically and seriously ill sister, Kate. And now, at age 13, finally that burden becomes too much for Anna to bear any longer. The story is told in multiple points of view, and it will make you think. Now also, if you have already read My Sister's Keeper, stay till the end of the, the interview because we will talk about the ending. If you don't want to hear the ending, if you don't want to be spoiled... We'll give you warnings so that you can tune away and not have the ending spoiled for you. So, here now, oh, and also, <clears throat> excuse the fact I had a cold the day I interviewed her. So, here now, from 2004, Jody Pico. Was the title to this book obvious to you from the outset? <laughs> I got to tell you, this is one of those ones where I had no idea what I was going to call it the whole time I was writing it. And and in fact, I just kept thinking, I was circling through, you know, tons of titles that didn't work. And, and I actually go walking at about 5.30 in the morning with a friend of mine. And she was telling me some fabulous gossip. And suddenly I turned to her and I went, my sister's keeper. And she went, huh? <laughs> and, you know, I guess, I don't know, maybe it was the three miles that jogged it out of me, but... <laughs> All of a sudden, I knew that was exactly what this book had to be called. Now, I had I had another author in this morning. We were talking about your book because I've been doing a lot of hand-selling of your book for you. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I appreciate it. She said, is this based on a true story? And I said, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I told her, I said, I think you got a thread of a germ of an idea from a true story for this book. Yes. And it actually started back when I was writing my previous novel, Second Glance, mm. because I was looking up eugenics for that book mm -hmm. and the science of better breeding and in particular um, episodes that happened during the 1920s and 30s where America was in the business of sterilizing those who they felt were unfit, which most people don't know. But one of the really interesting things that kept coming up for me when I was doing research on eugenics was a modern day case about a family that had conceived a child as a bone marrow match for an older sibling that uh, was ill, had a very rare form of cancer. And um, again, you know, basically did an embryonic screening to make sure this was the child that was going to be a perfect match. Um, wound up having the baby. The baby's cord blood was used as a transplant for his sister. It's been three years and seven months. The sister is 
completely cancer-free. The baby knows nothing because he was never really touched. Mm -hmm. And the sister knows that her brother's blood saved her. That's all she knows. So as of right now, I mean, this is like the happiest ending. And I Mm -hmm. hope to God that's Mm -hmm. exactly what this family gets because they deserve it after a lot of heartache and, and time put into this illness. But because my mind works a little differently, I kept thinking about what would happen if you pushed that envelope? What if it wasn't this particular disease burden this family had, but one that would require multiple donations from a donor child? Things that weren't just non-invasive, like um, stem cells in your cord blood, but bone marrow, lymphocyte, leukocyte donations, things that would really require a child to be tapped over and over. And that's how I began to conceive of Anna Fitzgerald, who is the donor child Mm -hmm. in the book. Is Anna the main character? God, no. Um, (laughs) You know, actually, it was when I was writing this book that I, I began to think not only about Anna, but about everybody else involved. And and actually, uh, we had something happen in our home lives that was very different because I don't tend to write about my life, um, namely because I write about very awful things in my books, and it's good that I don't write about my life. But my son, Jake, was diagnosed with a very rare condition called a cholesteatoma that he had in his left ear. It's a benign tumor that grows from the inside of the ear toward the brain. Won't kill you like a cancer, but it can burrow into your brain and get you that way. And you've got to get rid of it. And the traditional way to get rid of it is to take down the ear canal wall and leave the child deaf. My husband and I I went a different route, and we took Jake to a doctor who was experimenting with a different procedure. Uh, He wound up having 10 surgeries in three years, but ultimately, he wound up retaining his hearing, and he actually had this condition in both ears, we discovered, about midway through. So he, at this point, has um, hearing in his right ear and wears a hearing aid in his left ear during school. But, you know, if you meet him, he's a perfectly normal, happy, healthy little guy. And, you know, it's a great ending again for Mm -hmm. us. But I remember what it was like to tell my other two children, you know what, we're going to miss open school night because Jake's got surgery. Or, I'm sorry, we have to reschedule your birthday party. And there is a sense in which illness takes over a family. And when I began to think about Anna Fitzgerald complaining because she no longer wanted to donate, I also began to think about her parents and where they were coming from. Mm And so they became voices in the book. And then I thought, well, we really need to hear from her attorney and why he's in doing this. And from her guardian ad litem, who is also involved in the case and is trying to present her best wishes. And, you know, all of a sudden I wound up with six distinct narrators. Mm-hmm. Well, it works. It I'm- does. It, it feels like a quilt, yeah. I think, when you read it. And I realized pretty quickly on that I couldn't let one of them tell you the story because they all had a right to explain to you why they had made the choices they'd made. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wound up with this particular set of multiple narrators. (laughs) Now, was it purposeful that Kate has both an older sibling and a younger sibling? Absolutely. Um, You know, Anna, like I said, is the donor child. But there is an older child who Mm -hmm. was not a match. And that's Jesse, her older brother. And, Fine, uh, upstanding Jesse. Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, I love Jesse to pieces. Jesse is my 18-year-old juvenile delinquent, and I have to say that he was probably the easiest one to write, and I wish I could tell you why that is. I've never been an 18-year-old male juvenile delinquent, but um, but he was wonderful because Jesse, of course, was four years old when he discovered that he was a failure, that he couldn't save his sister with his blood. And, you know, from there, he has basically spent the rest of his life living up to being a failure. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Jesse, to me, is all heart and, of course, has his own little character arc in the story. But he loves his sister more than mm-hmm. anything. He just can't be the one to be the hero. Mm. 
I have to tell you, some of the parts that, <clears throat> that I found most poignant in your book were just those glimpses, just those moments when Brian and Sarah, the parents, are remembering what it was like when they were just getting started, uh-huh. starting a family. They have bright hopes. You know, the white picket fence and the station wagon with the wood on the side. <laughs> you know, who knows what yeah. life is going to bring you, and why can't we have that back? Yeah, you don't. And, I mean, that's that's the really interesting thing. When I've gotten a lot of email from people who've read this book who have children who have serious illnesses or even children with special needs, because in many ways it's very mm-hmm. similar. And um, there is that moment where, in fact, I got one this morning where this woman um, was talking – actually about her husband who had died of cancer last year and she said you nailed it there's one point in the book where where um where sarah wakes up and remembers what it was like in the five seconds before she really becomes conscious what it was like before she wakes up and she thinks it's all normal and then she remembers what she's carrying around with her and and she said you live for those five seconds every morning you know, and and when you get when you get feedback like that, that's a really amazing thing as a fiction writer because to tap into someone's emotions so soundly mm-hmm. and in a nonfiction way is, is really cool. After this short break, the emotional toll that writing My Sister's Keeper took on Jody Pico. Now back to my 2004 interview with Jody Pico. I'm guessing that it's hard enough to get into the mind of a 13-year-old girl (laughs) under ordinary circumstances. But this is certainly an extraordinary 13-year-old girl in very extraordinary circumstances. Was that difficult for you? Anna was a very interesting tightrope to walk. I I love her voice. I think she is very realistic. She does sound like a 13-year-old. And that that is something you have to work at Mm -hmm. when you're not 13. And we don't really have to talk about how old I am, do we? (laughs) But let's just suffice it to say I'm not 13. And, um, you know, I think that what's really interesting about her is that she rings true. She rings honest. But she's got a precociousness Mm -hmm. because she was really asked to grow up without ever being a child. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, she was asked to grow up from day one. And so there's an edge to her voice that you wouldn't find in a typical 13-year-old. And yet she still has that incredible mix of hope and that belief that things really could be different, which is what makes a teenager a teenager. Mm -hmm. Um, It's all that idealism, you know, that that they don't know what to do with yet because they haven't grown up. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And I love that. The hardest part of writing Anna was keeping her from whining. She was not allowed to whine because if she whined, you would have hated her and you were not allowed to hate her. I don't get the impression we're supposed to hate anybody in this book. You're not. And, um, and I think that's, that's really interesting because everyone is a hero in this book and everyone's a villain, which is, I think, the way it pretty much is in real life, too. You know, we want to blame someone. Mm-hmm. You, you read this book and you think, well, who, who can I blame? Where's the bad guy here? And, you know, you think maybe it's the parent. Well, it can't really be the parent when you think about where they, how they came to these decisions in the first place. They weren't even really decisions to, you know, use Anna for her body. They were really um, – it was, it was a life or death situation, mm-hmm. really, for Kate, for their other child. Mm-hmm. And you're not picking one child over the other, as Sarah says. You're choosing to have both. And any parent's going to want to do that. So mm-hmm. you can't really blame the parents. And, and you can't blame Anna either for being a 13-year-old who suddenly wants to figure out who she is and realizes her whole life's been wrapped up in being a part of Kate. And, you know, is it a bad thing to want to separate yourself mm-hmm. from that or is it a good thing? And, and there are all those shades of gray, but I think that's what makes 
That's what makes it very much like real life. And if Anna was 23 and not 13, somebody, nobody would think of saying, you will donate a kidney. Exactly. I mean, you know, this is, it's an unprecedented, for the most part, situation. And, and in our country, we have a long legal history of allowing parents to make decisions mm-hmm. in the best interest of their child, which is great because we assume a parent's going to do mm-hmm. just that. But the system breaks down when you have two children with competing medical interests. This was, I just did you have to immerse yourself in all medicine <laughs> and law and ethics and firehouses and, and just, yeah. the, the fields of knowledge required for, for a book like this are incredible. Yeah, but it's no different than any of my other books. It's just a different set of, of you know knowledge <laughs> parameters, like you said. And with this particular book. Um, you know, I was in different places. I was in oncology wards, and I was talking to the nurses who ran the arsenic trials for acute promyelocytic leukemia in New York when they first decided this might might help that disease burden. Um, you know, and and it was quite difficult to be with cancer patients and their families, especially pediatric cancer patients, because you walk in there and and you you leave thinking this these kids are upbeat and silly and funny and they crack jokes and they are just they completely understand how to live in the moment and of course their parents have this great big smile pasted on their face and they're doing it for for you and for the kids but they're still waiting for the other shoe to drop and some of the stories they told me wound up in the book because I just couldn't make them up that poignantly. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite is the mom who was talking about when her daughter's uh, X-ray, chest X-ray, was put up on a light board, <laughs> and uh, and she starts freaking out because she saw a big mass in the center that she thought was another tumor. And the doctor said, "Ma'am, that's your daughter's heart." <laughs> you know, and and of course that's you know your yeah. mindset's just different. And and then you know that was very difficult research. The most fun research was the firefighting. Did, did, did give, and, and, and I don't want to give anything away prematurely, but did, did give you pause to, to put a formula in here that, that, that certain arsonists could use if they so desired? No, because I'm very careful to do that. When I, when I write a book that has something in it that could be used for nefarious purposes, <laughs> I make sure to either alter the combinations or uh, somehow change the quantities so that you're not going to be able to read this as you know the arsonist's manual. So or don't anything. buy Jody's book and try this at home. No, a, no, no, okay. no, no, no. You know, it could be a bad thing. <laughs> Right, exactly. Uh, this this seems, seems like it would be a book that would have left you, by the time you were finished, very, very drained. Yeah. Was that, is that accurate? Absolutely. Um, it was a very hard book to write because I knew where the book was going. And, uh, and really, I mean, from page one, there just can't be a happy ending here. You know, I mean, I've sort of set it up for you so that you know it's just you're going to be cringing at the end no mm-hmm. matter what. So it was hard to follow through to its conclusion. Um Sometimes when you write certain characters, they stick with you harder than others. And this group in particular stuck really hard to me because they were incredibly real while I was writing them. So by the time I let them go, I was very happy emotionally to let them go. But it was hard because they had spent so much time with me over a nine-month course of writing. After this short break, we're going to reveal the ending of My Sister's Keeper. So tune away now if you don't want the ending to be spoiled for you. Now back to my 2004 interview with Jody Pico. And a spoiler alert, we are about to talk about the ending of the book, My Sister's Keeper. How early on in the book, in the writing of the book, did you know that it was going to be Anna that was going to die? I knew it immediately. From the, um, from the, from the get-go? Yeah. When I started conceiving the book, I knew that was the right ending for the book. But... I think there are two endings to this book. 
Um, the first ending comes during the courtroom scenes when Anna tells you why she has made this decision to instigate a lawsuit. And I think the whole time I've set you up so that you believe it's because Anna wants this autonomy and this mm -hmm. sense of independence as a 13-year-old. And of course, what you learn instead is that, no, she's doing this because it's the only way her sister's going to be able to just die in peace. Her mother won't let her go otherwise. And Anna knows she's the only one with the wherewithal to make it happen. And even though there's nothing Anna, I'm, I'm getting upset talking about it. <laughs> even though there's nothing Anna wants more than to have her sister mm -hmm. with her, you know, I think that um, that she feels this is the kindest thing she could do for her sister. This is the greatest gift she could give her. And when you find out at that moment that it's Kate who asks in not so many words, that to me is the big shock of the book. And interestingly, it's the one I didn't know was coming. Oh, gee. When I was writing it, I'm sitting there typing the courtroom scenes going, Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! I can't believe that's why she did it. You know, and it made perfect sense because it made me love Anna that much more. You know, but I really didn't know that was coming. But from there, of course, then I have to end the courtroom scenes, and mm -hmm. now I have like my big, you know, one-two punch here at the mm -hmm. end. And and I, you know, I know it's one of the hardest ways to end a book, especially because Anna's narrated for us too, and we love her mm -hmm. so much. Um, but. You know, I have to say it's the only ending, and I really, I still believe that. Now, I called up the oncology nurse I was working with when I got to that chapter, and I went, there's got to be another way to do this. What if Anna gets into a car accident, and Kate says, just kill me off and take my organs. Let's do it that way, you know? I, and, I, I almost thought that's what you were, well, where you're going with I wanted to, <laughs> and the oncology nurse goes, no way. Her organs are worth nothing. She's a mess. And, you know, I would have been forcing forcing reality there yeah. and you know the truth is I, I'm just as upset as you are when you read it um, I had a really hard time writing it but I I loved Anna and I also knew that her death was the only one that was going to jolt everybody out of this cycle of self-destruction you know Sarah's got to stop looking for the next big thing she's got to see what's right in front of her face and Kate has to stop thinking she's going to die mm -hmm. and you know needs to realize maybe she has a second lease on life mm -hmm. and something's got to bring this family back together and something's got to reroute Jesse from where he's going mm -hmm. into where he's gonna go. Well, I, I couldn't help thinking, you know, in your epilogue, I mean, we almost have, I, I don't want to say a happy ending, but at least there's some hope. There's some right. a little a little glimmer of happily ever after. And you Jesse's need back that. on the right track, yeah. you know, and Kate is living a full and happy life now. And the only thing about it is that she keeps hearing Anna's voice. Right, which is yeah. the way it would be, yeah. you know? But I, I had a really interesting question, actually, one that I hadn't fully thought through. Someone said, if Anna hadn't died, would she have given Kate the kidney? And I thought, oh, my gosh, that's such a good question. And I thought really hard about it, and I think she would have. You know, I mean, the last words you hear from Anna is her talking about what she wants to be when she grows up, and mm -hmm. she says, Kate's sister. Mm-hmm. So I would like to believe that in spite of this major medical battle that she's won, this legal emancipation thing, you know, I think that when it was her choice, when it came to carrying through, especially now that everyone knows Kate's wishes, I think she would have done it. Jody Pico is 58 now. She and her family live in New England. And you can find easy Amazon links to Jody Pico's books at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, you can hear from two other authors whose books have been banned. One of them is among the authors who's been banned in Martin County, James Patterson. I am doing a dance with the reader, and, and, and we're, all, we're all in it together. They want to have a good time. I want them to have a good time. 
on my tombstone, I want it to be, Jim kept a lot of people up late at night. And my interview with the graphic artist who created a book that has been banned many times over the years, the book Mouse, by Art Spiegelman. I didn't realize it was going to be so shocking when I was working on it. It wasn't like I had a high concept. On the other hand, I realized that if I was outside of this and somebody was telling me, I just heard about this comic book, it's about the Holocaust, and it uses animals to tell the story, I'd go, oh, geez, we've reached some new lows here, you know? And, of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my interview with a law professor who may have been a victim of the anti-woke sentiment long before anybody had ever heard those terms. My 1994 conversation with the woman who would have been Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights if people hadn't purposely misrepresented her academic writings, Lonnie Guineer. We've sound-bitten democracy. We think democracy is what we do. We think democracy means that the majority should rule without understanding what the limitations of majority rule are. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.